So I've been in Scottsdale here about five years coming up this fall, and it doesn't take very long living in this town to realize something about Scottsdale that's also, quite frankly, prevalent throughout all of America, and that is that we as Americans, and especially here in this town, are really good at looking great on the outside while being a mess on the inside. Give me a head nod if you all relate to that at all. I, I mean, it, I just think it's Scottsdale. I mean, you come to this town and everything looks so beautiful. You got all these resorts and bike paths and golf courses. You got Kierlands and Fashion Square and Scottsdale Quarter and all these beautiful places. You can buy nice clothes. You can get your body looking real good by going to sports, uh, gyms and all of that. I'm even told you can get certain types of surgery in this town to make yourself look better. I mean, there's all these things that this town overdoses on, and so we got a lot of people looking really good on the outside, but when you scratch the surface just a little bit, you realize it's not the same on the inside, that our exterior life is not indicative of our interior world. When I was back in Detroit, Michigan as an early pastor, I, I decided I wanted to take on a project. I decided to restore a car. Kurt, if you give me the first picture, uh, this is the car I decided to restore. It was a 1976 Fiat Spider convertible. Uh, somebody once said a Fiat is a poor man's Ferrari, so that's what it was for me. And I took this Fiat Spider, and for one entire winter, about five months, you ever been through a Detroit winter? About five months, I put this in my garage, and I decided I was going to restore this car to brand new. So, Kurt, give me the last picture. This is what it looked like in the spring. Really impressive, isn't it? I mean, I took it to a friend's house. We put a beautiful candy apple red on this car, and I was so proud of how I made this car look. And I'll never forget the day that I showed it to Rex Roy. Rex is in the automotive industry. He, he worked as a marketer and an advertising exec in Detroit in the day of the big three. And Rex looked at this car, and he said, in the industry, we call this car a 20-footer. I said, what's a 20-footer? He said, it looks best 20 feet away. Because you see, when you get close to this car and you look at it, you would realize all the different imperfections in the paint where the Bondo was showing, where the pop rivets weren't sanded down. I mean, this thing was piecemealed together, and it looks great in a picture, and it even looked good 20 feet away, but get any closer and you see it's not a perfect car. You see, I think many of our lives could be called 20-footers, right? I think that's prevalent in Scottsdale, that there's a lot of us who look good 20 feet away, and you're saying, Jamie, you're being really nice to yourself, but you look good 20 feet away, but the reality is you get any closer, you start to see what's going on on the inside, and you realize it's not quite the same, that emotionally we're living frazzled, depressed, anxious, hurting, sad lives at times. And though we go seasonably up and down, we live our lives with not a lot of emotional margin. And so as we cap off this series today on margin, we've looked at time and finances and physical, our physical lives, I want to talk today, and I think it's fitting for Mother's Day, but applicable to all of us, about emotional margin. And how do we get emotional margin in our lives? And believe it or not, and this will not surprise most of you, Jesus addressed this issue when he was on this earth. He did. He said and did some things that cut right to the core of what you and I have to deal with today. He did and said some things that address the issue of marginless living when it comes to our emotions. 
And so I want you to look at our main passage here this morning. It was one of Jesus' teachings when he was on this earth. It's very short but very profound. Very brief but very power-packed. And it's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. Jesus is speaking. Look up here on the screen or open up your own Bible and listen to what he says. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And now, this is a very, very interesting passage. I want you to notice me two things that Jesus does here, kind of a pattern in which he lays out two different kinds, but very similar kinds of rest. First, notice in verse 28 that he says, come to me and I will give you rest, right? Come to me. The connotation there is come to me in a faith relationship. We'll get to that in a little bit here. And he will give us immediate rest. Like the prodigal son coming home, he says, if you just come back to the farm, if you just enter into right relationship with me through faith, you will have immediate rest for your soul. You will have come home. You will be well on your way to garnishing emotional and spiritual margin. But then notice in verse 29 that he talks about a parallel kind of rest. He says in verse 29 there, he says, and then learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. And so there's a learned rest as well that we can discover over time through knowing and following Jesus. So latch on to this. An immediate rest through coming to him and then a learned rest over time through following him. And yet both are about rest and margin for our souls. So here's our main point this morning. It's the only thing I want you to really remember. And that is that it is through relating to Jesus, coming to him, as well as imitating Jesus, learning from him, that we find margin in our emotions. It's true. Jesus Christ is the great teacher of margin in both our faith relationship with him as well as in learning from him as we discover his life in the Gospels. Now, I'm going to wrap up here in a few minutes talking about how you and I come to Jesus and relate to him. But before we get to that, I want to explore briefly this whole idea of learning from him in order to find rest. Because you see, Jesus lived a fully human life when he was on this earth, right? Christians believe that. We believe that he was fully 100% God, God come in the flesh, we call it the incarnation, but that he was also at the same time fully and 100% human. So he lived a human life when he was on this earth dealing with all the things that you and I deal with. And in living a human life, Jesus lived life to the tilt, but also with plenty of margin. And so he models for you and me what it's like to live life to the full with lots of emotional margin. And we look closely at his life, though there's lots of things, we see at least seven things that he shows us, seven things that he models for us on how to develop emotional margin in our lives as a human being made in the image of God. So let me walk you through these things. Here's the first thing, and that is that Jesus shows us we need to connect regularly with God. It's true. We need to connect regularly with God. 
And so let me show you how Jesus did this. In the midst of his very, very busy public ministry, where he was teaching and healing and traveling all over the Holy Land and dealing with all kinds of people and all these demands on his time, look what it says in Luke 5, verse 16. It says, but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And you think, okay, so once in a while he'd do that. Look at Luke 6, 12 then. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then look at Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, his disciples came to be with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And so on a regular basis, this is what Luke is trying to tell us here. He inserts these little snippets here. On a regular basis, Jesus stole away from the crowds. He even stole away from the disciples in order to carve out space and time to be with God, to connect with God the Father. And this only makes sense that if you're made in the image of God, as St. Augustine said so well, that we all have a God-shaped vacuum inside of us that can only be filled by God himself, then surely we have to spend regular time with God in order to be filled up. That like a car running on an empty gas, a tank of gas that won't get very far, if you and I are empty, when it comes to our relationship with God, we got to fill up regularly or we're just not going to have energy and the reserves that we need. And so maybe this will help you understand why Christians spend a lot of time in the Bible. Because the Bible is God's word to us. It's his truth to us. It helps us think rightly about who he is. And then right from the Bible, once you understand God, you're supposed to go into times of prayer where it's just you and God on a regular basis, still before him, talking to him, listening to him. But we call it a quiet time. I don't know about you, when I first became a Christian 31 years ago this year, uh, somebody pulled me aside right away and said, hey, Rasmussen, it's great that you're now a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, but, but do you know you got to have quiet time each day? And coming out of the world I came out of, I was like, what in the world are you talking about? Quiet, that sounds like a time out, like when I was seven. Quiet time. And they explained to me that a quiet time was simply a, a time that I carve out each and every day at minimum in which I spend time with God, in which I don't watch TV, I don't listen to music, I don't do homework, I don't call my friends. It's just time where me and God spend time together. And I quickly learned that it's not rocket science. I mean, it's just me and a Bible learning about God, maybe reading through the Gospel of John or the Psalms. Billy Graham says that if you read five Psalms a day in a month, you'd be through all the Psalms. And exactly right. So one of my quiet times early on was I'd read five Psalms a day, and then I'd shut the book and think about what I just read, and then I'd talk to God. And I'd confess my sin before him, and I'd praise him for who he is. I'd tell him my problems. I'd present some requests before him. I even learned eventually to journal this stuff so I'd remember what I asked of God, and, and he could go back and, and see answers to prayer. It's a quiet time. And, and you know what's sad is that when I first became a Christian in Cleveland 31 years ago, in, in that culture that I was in, the church culture, everybody talked about their quiet time. I mean, everybody would say, I'm learning this in my quiet time, and this in my quiet time, and this in my devotional life. And, and I don't know, maybe it's just me. I just don't hear that as much anymore. I don't hear people say, this is what God is teaching me in my private prayer closet. This is how I'm connecting with God alone. 
Don't get me wrong. I hear people say, I heard a pastor say this, and it was awesome. Or I was listening to Christian radio, and I got this. Or this song is great. we got all these things we do in the church today. Do we all understand the most profound times that we have are with God alone? Us and him connecting regularly with him as our heavenly father. He, he wants to fill you up, but you need to be with him each day in that quiet space in order to gather the reserves that you need. For some of you today, the only thing you need to hear is that you need to get back to your quiet time. You need to get back to that space between you and God and watch him fill you up. Now, we're just getting started. There's more. So notice a second thing that Jesus shows us we need to do in order to gain emotional margin, and that is that in addition to spending time with God, we need to seek out consistent community with others and support. Consistent community with others and support. So isn't it interesting that when Jesus called the 12 disciples, you all know who the 12 disciples are, right? You probably can't list them because most Christians can't, which is pathetic. But anyways, you at least know that there were 12 disciples. And, and, and notice what happens when Jesus called them. This is amazing. Look at Mark 3, verses 13 to 14. It says, And he, Jesus, went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now here it is. So that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So that they might be with him, and he sent them out, and sent, he might send them out to preach. You know, when I hear most Christians talk today, the sense I get is that they think Jesus chose the 12 disciples mainly so that they could do the work of the ministry and be his representatives to start the church after he ascended into heaven. And though certainly that's true, and that last part of the passage there teaches us that, don't miss the first reason that Jesus called them to him, and that was so that they might be with him. He wanted to journey with 12 men during the public phase of his ministry, pouring his life into 12 men, having fellowship with them, community with them, relationship with them. And though the Gospels don't record this, we know that he had lots of downtime with his disciples, walking along the road, building camp, discussing things, laughing together, praying. Jesus spent quantity and quality time with 12 men. Why? I think to model for us what, what consistent community and relationality is about. So don't miss the point. Part of gaining emotional margin in the midst of, midst of a crazy and hectic life is not just about events and projects, which churches are so good at, but having a consistent aspect of relationality with a small group of brothers and sisters that you do life with. People that, as we're going to see in a second, you can be honest with and connect with and start to open up with, and people that can start to support you relationally, emotionally, spiritually in your life. It will fill you up as well. And, you know, I, every time I talk about this, I'm, I'm just amazed. I, I, I get the look from some men, not as much from women, thankfully, but from some men, I get the look, and men, I, I know what this look is like, and that is, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not doing it. I, I'm not going to open up my life to other men. I'm not going into that tunnel of chaos. I tried it once or twice before. It didn't work. I'm not going there. And men, I get it. 
I, I lived the first part of my Christian life trying to develop community with some other men, and I fell flat on my face, and I basically said, blank you. Not a real bad word, but, but a word I won't use in the pulpit. Just blank you. And, and I'm not doing it. And, and I struggled greatly in my Christian life as a result. But listen, whether it's easy or hard, I have learned over the years that if I don't surround myself with just a few people, a few men, that in addition to my wonderful marriage to Kim, can support me in my spiritual walk, then I am an accident waiting to happen. God says I'm not an island, that I need other people in my life. And I'm a pretty strong guy. And yet the reality is, is that I'm also finite, and I need community. So as you guys know, I meet every Friday with a group of hand-selected men that I'm doing life here together in Scottsdale with. And we call each other throughout the week and we pray for each other. One came up right after this last service and encouraged me in my walk and in my preaching. You see, that fills me up emotionally. That fills me up and prepares me for the week and time ahead. This is why our initiative this year, and some of you remember this, is called Worship Connect Serve. In our 50th year, we're asking everybody who considers Scottsdale Bible Church their home just to do three things. To worship regularly at one of our services and get godly teaching. To then connect with any type of small group of people in this church. We have all kinds of small groups, men's and women's, couples, support groups, all those types of groups. And then to serve, which we'll get to here in a minute. And the reason we're asking us to embrace Worship Connect Serve is so that we might find emotional margin and grow spiritually. It's what the Bible says you and I need, whether we know it or not, in order to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and find that sweet spot on a spiritual level. But we get emotional margin when we seek out consistent community and support. Now, isn't it interesting then that the third thing that Jesus shares with us here and models for us is right on the coattails of this one. And many of you are going to like this, but you're going to find this a great challenge. And that is that if you want emotional margin in your life, you're going to have to learn to be yourself and avoid a fabricated life. And this has come out of left field for some of you, but this is true. You need to be yourself. You need to learn to be yourself and avoid a fabricated life life. And so one of the things that we know from the life of Jesus is that he lived life with plenty of emotional margin. And as a precursor to that, don't miss, he was always, always, always himself displaying full emotion and humanity wherever he was in an unhindered and unashamed way. It's what a lot of Christians miss when they read the Gospels. They don't see the human side of Jesus and how he displayed perfect humanity from an emotional level with those around him, even when it came to the more difficult emotions of life. And let me show you what I mean. I want to read you three passages right now from the Gospels. And as I read each of these three to you, I want you to tell me what emotion you see displayed by Jesus. Look at Luke 22, verse 44. Jesus is in the garden. He's anticipating the cross. He's about a few days away from his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And it says this, And being in agony, he, Jesus, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. 
So what emotion do you think that Jesus is displaying here in the garden? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What emotion? Sadness? Anxiety? Fear? You know, the scriptures tell us to fear not. The scriptures tell us to be anxious for nothing. But the reality is, is that there are some events in life that are looming, that are going to happen, like Jesus' cross, in which as, as a human being you anticipate, you have a bodily response of an emotion, in this case, probably anxiety, but not sinful anxiety, not unrighteous anxiety, not an anxiety that doubts, but just anxiety knowing that you're going to go through a very difficult thing. And I think Jesus is showing that here. And I think it's fine as a human being at times to anticipate a very difficult situation and to feel the weight of that. Look at John chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. This one will be easier for you, but this is also very revealing. It says, In the temple Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, or sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So what emotion is Jesus displaying here? Dare you say it? Anger. Absolutely. Jesus is displaying appropriately and righteously the emotion of anger. He felt it, and he was not shy to give vent to it. Isn't that interesting? And then let me show you another one. The shortest verse in all of the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, it says, Jesus wept. Do you remember why he was weeping in this scenario? His good friend, Lazarus, has just died. And feeling the loss and sadness and grief of Lazarus's death, Jesus wept. So the Son of God, in all of his perfection, but all of his humanity, feels grief and sadness. I think when you look close in the Bible, you can see other things in Jesus's life. I think at times you see humor and laughter, sadness, peace, perplexity, joy, anger, hurt, disappointment, excitement. I mean, just the whole gamut of emotions that Jesus models for us that it's okay and even good to display at times in life. So here's what we know, folks. Bottling up emotions is draining. Have you ever tried it? Uh, bottling up your emotions is draining. Having to hide who you really are takes a tremendous amount of energy. And yet the opposite is also true. What Jesus teaches us is that learning to share them in appropriate ways, and that's the key, in appropriate ways, is very liberating and it causes one to have lots of margin in their now non-bottled up, non-draining emotional life. And all I know is that as I learned to do this, mainly in the 90s in my first pastorate, I started to grow emotionally and started to have more energy and margin in my emotions as I learned to be Christ in me, the hope of glory. As I learned to be myself in who God has made me. I never get one time back in the early 90s when I was first starting out in the pastorate, I was, I was golfing. I've never been a very good golfer, but I was golfing at, the, at this very nice country club in Detroit. A member had invited me there, and I was the associate pastor of this church, and this guy's name was Jim, and I had preached a couple times at the church. It wasn't my main job, but I was learning to preach. And I'll never forget when we were teeing off on one of the holes, Jim said to me, he said, do you mind if I give you a tip on your preaching? 
And I thought, oh, stink. Yeah, I mind, but I didn't say that because I wasn't myself. I said, no, go ahead. Just give me a tip. And I'll never forget his tip. He was spot on. He said to me, voice inflection. I said, say what? He said, voice inflection. He said, when you preach, he said, you never have voice inflection. You're just a straight monotone, and, and, and it's just like there's no emotion to your preaching. That was hard to picture, but just go with me. You have no emotion to your preaching. And I was kind of stunned by that because obviously if you're talking to any group of people, any people, you're feeling certain things. So I certainly felt things. So I went to my senior pastor. His name was Kevin. I said, Kevin, Jim says that I'm monotone when I preach. Is that true? And he sort of smiled and he said, yeah. He said, everybody knows that. And I said, whoa, I feel very naked right now. Why in the world does everybody know that and I don't see it? And he said, because you're just so afraid up there. He said, you're so afraid of displaying any emotion. You're so afraid of displaying who you are. You read your notes. You're tied to your sermon because you're so afraid that they might reject you, that if they see the emotion of who you are, they might not like it. If they see your passion, if they see your frustration, if they see your excitement, if they see your goofiness, they just might not like that about you. And he said, so therefore, you're not you up there. He said, my heart's longing for you is that you learn to be me. Meaning, be yourself. <laughs> See? So I spent most of the 90s learning how to share God's word, giving full vent to the emotions that I feel. And let me ask you a question. Do you think that gets me in trouble sometimes? Do you think there's some times where I say something and immediately when I say it, I go, crud, I should have stuck to my notes. Because I didn't mean to say that. And I didn't mean to say it that way. It was passion leaking out in me. And doggone it, Rasmussen, why? There are times I do that. There's even times where I say something and I think it was completely right and I just have a passion behind it and I get an email of somebody saying, I think you're an idiot. I, I, I just don't like that aspect of you, Jamie. I don't like to see that side of you coming out. There have been people who sent me emails telling me to chill out. There are people in emails telling me that not to be this way. And I'm telling you, they push buttons in me. I mean, they really do. I'm not here to bleed on you. I'm not. I don't want you to get all Freudian on me. But sometimes I get those emails, and I sit there and go, oh my gosh, it's my dad when I'm four. It's my dad saying, Jamie, stop that. Stop being like that. And I sit there and go, oh, my. You know, I'm just a mess inside. I'm in my office going, oh, my gosh, I'm regressing to a four-year-old right now. I care what these people think. And it bothers me. Now listen very closely. Do you know what I do when I start to feel that with some of you? I resist it like the plague. It's a spiritual battle. But I actually will go to my, again, remember I seek out consistent support. I actually go to my men's group and say, man, I'm so insecure. I'm a mess here. You know, help me with this. And they'll say, Jamie, you're fine. You're okay who you are. You're being Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you dare not live a fabricated life. You see, you struggle with the same thing. The reason I can be honest about this with you is because I know you relate. You struggle with ever showing people in appropriate ways who you are, whether it's anger, frustration, encouragement, passion. All of us tend to get bottled up, and we're not free in who Christ has made us to be. And part of having emotional margin is learning to be okay with who God has made you to be, and again, in appropriate ways learning to share the emotions that God has given you. But just accept the consequences when you do, because not everybody's going to fall down and call you blessed for being honest emotionally. 
There will be times when people don't like it. But that's the price of being you. And I would say Jesus would say that's a good thing, and you'll have some margin. Uh, Fourth thing that Jesus teaches us, and again, this is all following one after another, is that if you want emotional margin, you need to learn to set clear boundaries and keep them. Set clear boundaries and keep them. You know, it's fascinating. At at one point in Jesus' life, when Lazarus was so sick, and the disciples sent him word saying, Jesus, come back. He was like a two- or three-day journey up north in Palestine. And they said, you got to come back to Judea and, and, and minister to your friend Lazarus. Look at what happens in John 11, verses 6 and 7. It says, so when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, now here it is, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after he, this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again fascinating. Hey, do you guys remember what happens in the story when Jesus finally gets back down to Bethany and, and, and he's entering in the city gate? Lazarus is now dead. He died during those intervening two-day two day time. And, and Jesus obviously sad that he is dead, but his sisters, Mary and Martha, are really ticked that Jesus didn't come back. Because whenever you set boundaries, people get ticked. So they're really ticked that Jesus didn't come back. And if you remember, one of them met him at the city gate and even gave full vent to her anger and communicated her frustration with Jesus. And I don't want to read the whole story right now, but Jesus uses this time to to teach the the ladies about faith and the resurrection and what eternal life is all about. And he talks about Lazarus and death and all of that. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead, one of his greatest miracles he ever performed. Uh, But don't miss that one of the things Jesus did is set a boundary initially. He didn't mind saying no, even though he knew there was going to be a cost associated with the no. You see, you and I today, one of the reasons we need a series on margin and one of the reasons we're emotionally frazzled is that we say yes to way too much. We say yes to everything on our job, our hobbies, our friends, our civic commitments, even our church. We do too much. We're constantly on the go. We're constantly moving. We live in a soundbite culture, and therefore we have soundbite lives. And one of the things we've seen in this series is that it slowly sucks us dry. And we're never going to have the margin that we want emotionally, physically, or with time or, or with finances if we don't learn to gain control and say no and set clear boundaries around that which we say yes to and that which we say no to. Part of learning margin is learning to say no to appropriate things, as we learned a few weeks ago, even good things, and set some margin or boundaries around your time and emotions so that you have some breathing space. You can't do it all. you got to set boundaries. Then notice a fifth thing, because we're fast running out of time, that Jesus reveals to us about developing emotional margin. And we're not going to spend much time on this one at all, but it's core to what being a Christian is, and that is seek to reconcile relationships. Now dial into this, because this is true. Everybody and their brother knows that unreconciled relationships equal emotional drain, right? Do you have any unreconciled relationships in your life right now? What happens every time you think about them? You go, oh, oh, and you just start to cringe, and all of a sudden you feel the energy start to get out of you, and it feels bad. That's what happens with unreconciled relationships. And though I'm a realist and know that we can't reconcile every broken relationship in our life, even the scriptures say, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So we know that we can't reconcile every relationship. 
We as Christians need to always do our best to reconcile as many as possible if for no other reason that it helps us live at peace with all those around us, as well as it shows us as Christians, one who understands forgiveness and reconciliation. And the byproduct is that you get emotional margin. They're not weighing you down anymore. The confusion, the frustration, the anger, the hurt, the loss is lessened. Reconciled relationships, even just the seeking of them, has been shown to bring emotional release and margin. And Jesus did this a lot. We don't have time to look at the scripture, but what did he do with Peter when he restored him in John chapter 21? Reconciled a relationship. And it created tremendous release and freedom in Peter, so much so that he went on to become one of the three pillars of the New Testament church. It gave him margin emotionally. And so for some of us here today, in order to gain emotional margin, you need to think of some of the relationships that are broken now. And as a follower of Christ, Ask yourself, have I done everything that I can to reconcile these? And if you haven't, maybe you need to re-up your commitment to reconciliation again. It will help you emotionally. Sixth, notice that Jesus' life teaches us that we need to develop a lifestyle of serving God and others. Now, this one is tricky. Matthew 20, 28 says that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And yet I hear Christians say so often, and isn't this sad, I hear them say, you know, I'm just too busy to serve right now, and my life's kind of a mess, and so I really don't have much to offer. And once I get my life together, and once I get some time margin, then I will serve God. You know, that's really bad thinking. What psychologists would call stinking thinking. And you know why? It's because of the reality that God says it is through serving others, it's through focusing on others, that he will fill you up. If all you ever do is focus on yourself, or even just you and God, but never have consistent community and support and never serve others, you have no way, you don't have an adequate way to completely fill up your soul. So God wants you and I to serve out of brokenness. He wants us to serve out of even depletion, knowing that as we serve others and those in need, he fills us up. And again, many Christians think it's the opposite. We serve out of overflow. No, we serve even out of deficit because God uses that to fill us up emotionally. Again, that's why we're emphasizing this year, worship, connect, and serve. We know how God wants to fill you up through worshiping him with teaching and then also through connecting with others and serving others. Now again, if you're serving like crazy and doing too much, as we saw in our last point, then you need to cut back. But studies show that the average Christian isn't in that camp, especially when it comes to serving others, that they need to up their service as a way of creating emotional margin. And then lastly, and with this we're going to wrap up, you need to maintain an attitude of hope. You need to maintain an attitude of hope. Listen, one of the things that modern humankind has found is that when we lose hope, whether it was through World War II or the Cold War or through the Great Depression, when you lose hope, you're quickly zapped of emotional energy and stamina. Hope gives margin to the soul. It reminds you that you're not a lost cause and with God that there is no hopeless future. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 1. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Hope gives us encouragement this side of heaven and great encouragement for the next. So let's review very quickly. Look up here on the screen. Here are the seven things we looked at this, this, this today. We need to connect regularly with God. 
We need to seek out consistent community and support. We need to be ourselves, avoiding a fabricated life. We need to set clear boundaries and keep them, seek to reconcile relationships, develop a lifestyle of serving, and maintain an attitude of hope. All of these things modeled in the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. These are all things that we imitate in his life. Now here's my last thought. For any of this to be true for you, for you to get any traction in these areas, you have to first heed Jesus' original three words. Do you remember what they were? Come to me. Come to me. Before any of these seven lessons can really be incorporated into your life, you need to come to Jesus in personal relationship. Remember what he said. Come to me, immediate rest, and then learn from me, a learned rest. And yet many people today in our multicultural kind of therapeutic culture don't mind learning a few things from Jesus and imitating his life, but we really don't want to see him as Savior, as God, as Lord over our lives. And so may I encourage you today on this Mother's Day that if you haven't come to Christ for salvation, if you've not accepted Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, that you would do so today. That as I wrap up in prayer right now, that you might receive Christ, come to him for that initial rest, and then to begin to learn from him as you follow him as your Lord. Why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. Father God, it's been a, a great series, a great day here at Scottsdale Bible as we've honored the moms among us, as we've heard Scott sing, as we've heard a bit of his story as we've now looked at the life and teachings of Jesus. And Father, as we established here about a half an hour ago, there's not one of us here today that doesn't sense a need for emotional margin at times in our lives, maybe even a lot of time. And so Father, as we've learned from the life of Jesus today some profound lessons on how we can gain margin, we want to deal with the main issue, and that is coming to him as Lord and as Savior. Father, for those who have accepted Christ already here today, I pray that today they might walk out encouraged knowing that they, as they apply these seven things, maybe they pick one or two that they need to focus on, that, God, you're all about giving them more freedom and margin and fullness in their emotions. But, Father, i got to believe there's some here today, too, that are enticed, drawn to the words of Jesus here, but they have yet to really receive him as Lord and Savior, to accept him into their lives and invite him to be the leader and forgiver of their lives. So right where they sit now, Lord, they admit that they have sin and a need for you. And Lord, they believe and they trust in Jesus Christ and they invite him into their lives as Lord and the Savior. And Father, I pray that as anybody would do that here this morning, that God, you would give them that immediate rest for their soul, give them that immediate fruit of the Spirit that Galatians talks about, where they have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, now flowing from the inside of them as you have rebirthed them into Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for all of us that as we go from here now that we might honor those around us, might love them in the name of your son Jesus, and Lord, that you might give us that margin we need so that we can be more about kingdom work when it comes to how you use us in this culture that so needs a good word from you. So God, thank you for our time today. May the women among us feel honored as they receive a rose on their way out. May they know that you love them, and so do we. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.